And we're ready to go again. Okay. We do have a homework due this week on Friday. And a quiz due by Sunday. So a couple little things coming up this week. Then the big one is the exam. Uh, next exam on chapters 13, 14, and 15. Again, we're through 13 and 14 completely. And 15 we're getting through. We'll either finish it. We'll finish it probably somewhere through the day on Friday is my guess, looking at what we've got right now. I probably won't finish it all today, but we'll get through a lot. We'll have, we'll have it done by Friday. It'll certainly easily be on to chapter 16 on Friday. So we'll, we'll be good for having covered everything for the exam. So you can concentrate on those chapters. Um, I do have, I'll have to put up 13's, the review question sheets. I, 14 and 15, I think if you go on WebCT, they're there now because this is actually where I started them last year because it was actually a student's suggestion said, can we have a review sheet? So I actually started making them last semester, but I started them in chapter 14. It was when they were coming up to the last exam. Can we have something to review? So I started doing them there, and then I've gone around since then and made them as we go. 13s is done. I just have to put it. It's just not in the course yet. So I will, if you don't see it shortly, again, email me and say, can you put it up to remind me? I'll try to remember to do it right after class, though. And then we also have... That's not your homework. We have the last iTunes quiz is coming up. That'll be the pictures going from the 18th of October to the 18th of November, so the last month's worth. So that goes through Friday's pictures. So I will make that up hopefully this weekend and have it available this weekend through the Sunday after Thanksgiving. So you'll have all that time to work on, to work on it if you like. And then after that, then we have a bunch of things coming due, like one, two, three, four, five, all of a sudden at once that last week, then there's like 20 things due. So, well, not that bad, but okay. Questions? Yes, ma'am. Homework seven. Um, That's not you guys. 103. But ours is on WebCT, but it's got a due date of April from last year. Oh, it's probably the old one from last year. So it's, it'll be similar. But I'll give you that out probably next week. It may not be exact. It may be exactly the same. I haven't looked at it yet. Sometimes I, I look at them, and sometimes there's ones that I realize gave issues, and I do modify the questions. So I can put it up there. Yeah, I'll take a look at that and try to remind. I'll try to have it up. Yeah, I can see if I might get to that today. I'm not sure if I'll get to that today or it'll be tomorrow. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I can make sure I put up a copy or just, you know, email me, say you need a copy. I can always attach one and send, and send it back to you. That's no problem. As long as I don't get the email three, <laughs> three months. That was funny. Okay, picture of the day then for today. Another nebula, right? Not quite as pretty. Almost looks like a, I don't know, first thing I thought, it's almost like looking through the clouds or if you're laying on your back looking up at the clouds, looking at the sky, but that's actually a nebula out in space. So that's not the sky as seen from Earth through the clouds. That's actually a bunch of denser nebulae around the center and the, around the edge, and then le less dense material in the center. And you can sort of see where the stars that are forming in this nebula are kind of clearing out the material. So you get all of these pillars, as they're called, where there's still dense material and still probably stars forming in these much denser areas. And what happens is when those young stars form, and we looked at some of this back a couple chapters ago, they get very strong stellar winds, and they try to click, clear out the nebula. So they're trying to clear it out. They're pushing through and pushing out all the material. And all of a sudden, it comes to this much denser area, and it can't push, this, can't push it as hard. So that dense area is a little left behind, so it clears out around it. And you've probably seen similar patterns as you watch water flow 
over a sandy area, if it hits a denser area, all of a sudden there's, that's left there and it eats away all the sand around it. And the same thing happens in space here. That there's a denser area where stars are forming. Now that doesn't mean that'll stay forever. You know, eventually the, oh, that pressure over many thousands and million, a million years will eat away that entire pillar. So eventually it will eat it away. What'll be left is just whatever stars are forming in there. But what it does tell us is perhaps that as they eat away at this material, maybe those stars that are forming inside those pillars, the later stars forming in what's going to be eventually be a cluster of stars, are going to be a little bit smaller than they otherwise would have been. If they'd been the first stars to form, this effect wouldn't have occurred. And they would have kept growing and growing and growing because they would have been collecting all that gaseous material. But when they're later, but when they form later, they have the effect of some of these big bright stars that have formed kind of eating away at their, their material, eating away at the material from which they're trying to form. And you lose, and you, so you might lose that. And you might actually get somewhat smaller stars occurring later on than you normally would have otherwise than if they had formed by themselves. But again, a pretty, a pretty picture, a pretty picture at least. So questions? Questions? One whole table not here, huh? <laughs> 17, that's not too bad. Not too bad for a Wednesday. Okay. All right. Back to galaxies. So from, cl from star clusters out to galaxies. This is where we finished up last time. So we were looking at the distribution of ga how galaxies are distributed in space. And this is something we're going to be coming back to over the next couple chapters, actually. But this we were looking at here. And again, this is the one slide I finished up with last time. And what we're looking at, we talked about our local group, which was a small group, maybe 40 or 50 galaxies. And this is the Virgo cluster of galaxies, which is a very large cluster, super cluster that we call. And it has a very large elliptical galaxy, M87, classified by Charles Messier, number 87 in his catalog, all that good stuff, that happens to be the very large elliptical galaxy that's at the core of this cluster. And it dominates the cluster, but there's a lot of other galaxies too. There's M86 is another galaxy here you can see. And all of these little objects that don't look like points here are other galaxies in the cluster. And if you take this entire area and you want to sit there with your little magnifying glass and count the galaxies, there's about 3,500 galaxies in this, in this cluster. It's about 3,500 galaxies just in this one cluster. So. Again, we're kind of, as we get further and further out in the universe, we become less and less, we, we seem to be becoming less and less significant. You know, we're this little tiny, plant, little tiny planet within the solar system. We're small, but then but that's only within a galaxy, and now there's so many thousands and millions and billions of other galaxies. So, what are these galaxies doing? They don't like us. They're all moving away from us, almost all of them. They're all moving away. They don't like us. So maybe we forgot to take a shower this morning or something, you know, and they're just all running away. Get away, get away from that, get away from that galaxy. But they're all moving away from us. There are a couple of exceptions. There's a couple of nearby galaxies that are not. But as we look at them and we look at their, the shift of their lines, remember the Doppler effect, right? We turned over the Doppler effect a while ago. The further, the more shift we get, the faster things are moving away from us. So when we look at this galaxy here, relatively close by one, there's one of those galaxies in Virgo that we were just looking at. It's moving away at some velocity, 1,200 kilometers per second. So it's 
zipping away from us pretty, pretty fast. 1,200 kilometers every second, that's faster than we normally move. So it's really moving away. But that's small compared to some of these other galaxies. And as you can see, we can see some of these lines in the galaxy, and we can see them here in this galaxy. In a more distant galaxy, they've been shifted even further, or further, or further, or further. So it can be shifted almost to one edge of the spectrum to the other. And there's some galaxies here that could be moving away 61,000 kilometers per second. So 61,000, so no, nowhere near as fast as light, but they're moving away incredibly quickly. So these galaxies are getting further and further away from us all the time. And the further galaxies are getting away even faster. Now, we'll come back. This is what Hubble had discovered. So he had discovered this. He had been looking at all the different galaxies and had found that the further galaxies were receding faster. We'll come back to this in a chapter or two and try to explain a little more why and what's going on with it. But what we do find is that there is a correlation between the two. There's a relationship between how fast the galaxy is moving away, how fast is it moving, how big of a redshift does it have, and what its distance is. So if we found the distance from some other method, Cepheid variable stars for nearer ones, maybe a type 1 supernovae for the more distant ones, we found their distances. He found that there's a relationship between the distance and the redshift. That's nice. That's important because that gives us a way to determine. If we find that and it's correct, it gives us a way to determine distances. So what he can plot is here, the first five galaxies, that's the five galaxies we looked at here, and you just plot their distance as measured through some method. One of the other methods we've talked about, said Cepheid variable stars, supernovae, one of the other methods, and we measure their recessional velocity, how fast away they're moving for us. Not a perfect straight line, but there's some errors in measuring distances, there's some errors in measuring the velocity, so it's a pretty good, I mean, you can get a pretty good idea, there's a pretty good straight line there. So it's a pretty good fit. If you look for a much larger example of galaxies, it still seems to continue. Again, there's a few that are off a little bit, but you can get through and get a pretty good average that tells you that if a galaxy is receding at 50,000 kilometers per second, you could then tell me exactly how far away it is. So it's a good way, it's another way, now another way to get distances. And it's a way to get distances that's sort of independent of anything else, something relatively easy to measure. And it's something that doesn't depend on you know, supernovae were real good. We knew, they were, we knew exactly how bright they were going to get. They were really good. But if I want to find a distance to that galaxy, I've got to sit and wait. And wait, and wait, and wait for the supernova to go off. I can't go make one go off in that ga distant galaxy. I've got I've to wait for one. Here is a way to measure to any galaxy. And it's very easy to measure because all we need is the Doppler shift. All we need to do is take, we just need enough light from that galaxy to get a Doppler shift and measure, find a few spectral lines and figure out how big the shift is. I can easily measure the velocity. Once I have the velocity and there's a relationship between these two, boom, I can get the distances very easily to any galaxy that I can measure. So any galaxy, as long as I can get a spectrum of it to measure the Doppler shift, I can determine the distances to it now. So it's another big way to give us distances and it really expands our distance ladder. Now how does it work? is that there's the relationship, is the slope of the line. 
So when you look at the slope of that, it gives you a constant. So that slope is a constant, which is called Hubble's constant. And there's just a simple relationship that says the velocity is equal to Hubble's constant times the distance. Or the distance is equal to the velocity divided by Hubble's constant. Problem is, you've got to determine exactly what that number is. And that's the problem. It's difficult to get that number. Now we've refined measurements of it. We now have it narrowed down. We think it's somewhere in the range of maybe 50 to 80 kilometers per second per megaparsec. So that just means that a galaxy, if it happens to be 50, just to give a number, and this galaxy is one megaparsec away, it would be receding at 50 kilometers per second. A galaxy two megaparsecs away would be receding twice as fast, or 100. Three megaparsecs would be three times that value, and so on. But the problem is that's still a pretty big range between 50 and 80 kilometers per mega per kilometers per second per megaparsec and 80 kilometers per second per megaparsec. That's a lot better than it had been. It had been, there had been error, there had been a time 20, 20 years ago even, where it was an even bigger range. There were people who said it was in the 40 to 50 range and there were people that said no it's over 100, it's 100 to 150. So there were two very big, and that was even a wider difference. Here you're still almost you know, you can have a 50% error very easily, depending on which value you choose to use for it. So the problem is getting the value of this constant. If we knew exactly what this constant was, it would be quite easy. Then we could easily get distances. We can still get a pretty good idea, and it's much better, it's as good as any other method that we currently have for determining distances to the most distant galaxies. But it does, you just have to I want you to keep in mind that it does have this uncertainty with it. We don't know. You know, it's not like some constants in physics that you can measure and we can tell you what the speed of light is to 20 decimal places. Or I can tell you what, you know, Newton's, the gravitational constant in Newton's law is to so many decimal places. This Hubble's constant is, you know, we're still trying to figure out the tens place. Let alone any decimal places beyond that. Anything beyond that would be meaningless. Now, the interesting thing with Hubble's law is it actually works better for the most distant galaxies. Because what happens is those nearby clusters of galaxies, and that's why some of those galaxies in our local group, some of those nearby galaxies are actually moving towards us. Because each galaxy in a cluster is moving around as well. So the galaxies within their cluster are moving. And you might have a cluster of galaxies. My Excellent artistic drawing there of a bunch of galaxies. But some of these galaxies, as they're moving in the cluster, some could be moving towards us. You know, if we're looking from down here, so some of them could be moving towards us at the time in their orbit. Some could be moving away. Some could be moving. They're going to have some motion just within their cluster. And then this whole cluster has some motion that is away from us. So if you're very, very close to us, and this is, this is a small velocity, then you might be, this cluster within might be moving faster and might net when you add the two velocities together, right? The whole velocity of the cluster moving away from us versus the individual velocities. So some of them will be moving away a little bit faster. Some of them could actually be moving towards us. But as you get further and further away, and this arrow gets bigger and bigger, 
as you get further and further away, that velocity of the whole cluster gets to be gigantic. And all these little motions in the cluster are overwhelmed and you don't see them. So Hubble's law doesn't work very good when you're close to us. So it's the opposite of all the other distance determinations we've talked about. It's completely different. It does not work very good when, it's when we're close. Because there's little random motions within each cluster that when you're close and this recessional velocity is small, get overwhelmed. But when we get very far away and the whole cluster is moving away at you know, tens of thousands of kilometers per second and there's motions of 100 kilometers per second towards us, you don't even notice it. It's well within your errors of trying to measure the distances and the velocities. But when you're moving away at hundreds of kilometers per second and the galaxies are moving at hundreds of kilometers per second, then everything combines together and you could, either, you could even end up being moving the net, this galaxy could end up moving close to us. So Hubble's law is distinct in that, in that it actually is very good. The further away you're trying to measure, the better it gets. Every other distance measurement we've used has been the other way around. It had an upper limit. It had an upper limit as far as you could possibly measure it. Hubble's law has more of a lower limit. You can't measure it any closer than this because there's too many errors. It works much better when you get a lot further away. So there's our last step in the distance ladder. Nothing else beyond that, but as I said, everything again. All these other ones, you know, parallax, wouldn't it be nice if parallax for us worked further, better further out? That would be wonderful. We could determine the distances to galaxies directly using that. But it doesn't. It's only good within 200 parsecs, about 600 light years. Spectral parallax, spectroscopic parallax is good within about 30,000 light years. We use some of the stuff to get out to other galaxies. We need to use things like variable stars, the Tully-Fisher relationship, Tully-Fisher relation that can get us out a little bit further. You know, hundreds of millions of light years. Supernovae, a billion parsecs. Or billion parsecs would be about 3 billion light years, 3.2 billion light years. So about a quarter of the universe we can map with type 1 supernovae. The closest quarter, but only about a quarter as you look, further, as you look out, outward. That's about a quarter of the entire age of the universe. Hubble's law is all we have for going beyond that. There's no other way to get a good distance further beyond that couple billion light years. We have to use... Hubble's law beyond that. And it doesn't work very well within. So for the nearest galaxies, this is useless to determine the distance to Andromeda. The Andromeda galaxy, two million light years away, is actually moving towards us slightly. So we couldn't, you can't use it here, it doesn't work. But for very distant galaxies and the most very most distant objects, it's incredibly useful and does give us the best estimates of the furthest distances. Okay, so that's a little bit about normal galaxies, active galaxies. Active galaxies are a good chunk of the galaxies in the universe. So it's not just, they're not just the rare galaxies. They're actually relatively common. Maybe about a quarter of them. About a quarter of all the galaxies are active. Now what does an active galaxy mean? It means that they are more luminous than they should be. So you look at the typical, the other three quarters of those spiral galaxies. And they fit a very distinct pattern. They have certain patterns to them. But about a quarter of them don't. They actually look too bright. They're emitting too much energy. And the graph here is showing 
the brightness across the entire spectrum. So not just a little spectrum, but we're looking at everything from x-rays here, visible infrared to radio. Now, almost every normal galaxy, if you take the spectrum, so if you see how bright it is in x-rays, if you see bright, how bright it is in visible, infrared, and radio, you get the same type of spectrum that we've been looking at most of the course. Right? I've showed you that back when, we told you back when we talked about spectroscopy, the black body radiation. So they behave like a heated up source. So something object that's been heated up has a certain average temperature and that tells you where the peak is. If you do this for an active galaxy, you don't get that. An active galaxy gives you kind of a little wobbly spectrum like that. It's brighter all the way across, so it's brighter in the visible, brighter in the infrared. But look at the x-rays. They're extremely strong x-ray sources. Whereas a normal galaxy would not emit much of anything in terms of x-rays overall. These galaxies are incredibly bright in x-rays. In fact, they bright in x-rays as they are in the visible or the infrared. And the radio is also a lot stronger. Radio is dropping off here, and it does eventually, but over in some of this area in the earlier part of the radio, it's still very, very bright. So they're emitting a different type of radiation. It's not just thermal energy, which thermal energy would be the light from stars. Mostly. So mostly when you're looking at a normal galaxy, essentially what you're doing is you're adding up all the stars that you see in it. So all the stars, we're finding an average, essentially an average temperature of all those stars, and that's where the peak. That would give you the peak. And everything would fade off there just as it would be as if that galaxy was essentially a giant star. But an active galaxy is completely different. An active galaxy is, gives you a completely different type of spectrum. It's emitting a completely different type of radiation. Not completely. Those active galaxies do have stars too. So this is a component of the active galaxy. But it has things, when you get to the x-ray, it has some things that overwhelm the normal emission by those stars and nebulae that would be in the galaxy. Same thing in the radio. This is here. There are stars. It's not like these galaxies don't have stars. They have normal stars that, you know, like the sun, but they also have something else. And this radiation is non-stellar. So it's not caused by stars. It can be called non-stellar, it can be called, sometimes called non-thermal radiation. So a non-thermal just means that it's not stellar. So non-thermal just means it isn't done by a hot object. So you heat up a star, it emits a certain spectrum. If you're producing the energy from some other way, then it's a non-thermal spectrum. Now a couple of these galaxies some of these galaxies, a couple, a certain percentage of these galaxies, let's put it that way, are what we call starburst galaxies. So starburst galaxies are galaxies which are undergoing a burst of star formation. Nothing to do with the candy. You, know, you think that M&M Mars has something with this because we've got the Milky Way and we've got starburst now. So that's all M&M Mars, so what is Hershey stuff? I don't know. But you have the stars when galaxies collide and smash together or interact with each other, that's one way to condense those gas clouds and start stars forming. So we can actually get star formation occurring due to this. So some galaxies are active. The galaxies may be active, called starbursts, because the two galaxies are collided or interacted and cause them to increase their rate of star formation. So they're going to be, because of that collision, because of that interaction, they're going to be a lot brighter in terms of stars than they would be otherwise. Come back to those. 
the ones we're really looking at here when we talk about active galactic nuclei is not just the galaxies. It's mainly the nucleus of the galaxy. So you can see, probably see where we're going with this. We talked about what's at the nucleus of our galaxy. This is all things that are going on close to the center of that galaxy. So what's going on in there? Remember we said with our galaxy there's a black hole, 3.7 million solar masses or so. These other ones are going, we're going to find that they have black holes as well and sometimes significantly bigger than what we have in our own galaxy. So there's a, there's going to, when you look at the active galaxies, there's going to be a couple different types that we'll talk about. And some of them are, if we classify them, there's Seifert galaxies, Seifert galaxies, radio galaxies, and quasars. Seifert galaxies are like a spiral galaxy and they actually look, you look at the galaxy there, okay, you can't tell the difference. But if you measure the luminosity, you measure how bright this, this central core is, the rest of the galaxy, other than that it's a false color image here, you have to watch out for that, but the core is a lot brighter than it otherwise should be. Th by thousands of times, not just twice as bright or three times, but thousands of times brighter than it otherwise would be. But other than that, except for the core, it looks like a normal spiral galaxy. So it's something going on at the core there. So we'll have Seifert galaxies which look, for, look like spirals. We have radio galaxies and quasars as a couple different types of active galactic nuclei. So now we're classifying, we're looking at just the ones where something is going on strong in the nucleus. So the rest of the galaxy may not look all that different than a typical spiral galaxy. But something unusual is going on at the core. Something unusual is going on that is causing it to be thousands of times brighter than it would be if in a typical galaxy. Now when we look at the cores, we can look at their variations, we can look at how their, how their brightness changes. So they're not consistent in their brightness, they change. So their intensity might be, and again this is just some random units so just to compare, but at a unit of 10, but here five years later it might be down to a 3, and then all of a sudden five years after that it shoots up to a 15, so it might get five times brighter over a very short time frame. So meaning that if you're going from here in 1980, it's gotten brighter and fainter and brighter. The shortest term variations that you can find in these objects, and this is a very, these are actually very long term, tells us the size, the maximum size that the object producing it can be. Because something cannot be, cannot vary faster than it takes light to travel across it. So if something was the size of our solar system, which it might take light a day to go across, and you were seeing it vary and get brighter and fainter and brighter and fainter in four hours, that means it had to, would have to be much smaller than that. It couldn't be that big. Because one side is getting brighter, if the whole object is getting brighter, it takes light a certain amount of time to travel across it. And if it takes light a day to travel across it, it's going to wash out any variations that are shorter than that. Just because it's so big and it takes the amount, that amount of time. So if we see variations on scales of a year, where it's physically getting brighter, fainter, brighter, that means the object must be 
smaller than a light year across. In some of these, we see variations going down to, here we're seeing years. You can go down and see them varying very strongly in months, in weeks, in days even. And there's been some discussion of variation on hours. So you're looking at something that is incredibly compact. If it is hours, if they're actually varying on scales of hours, then they have to be smaller than our solar system. So whatever is producing all of this energy, whatever is producing and there go. Whatever is producing the energy and causing this center to be a thousand times brighter than it otherwise would be has to be something the size of our solar system if they're really varying that fast. So that is, an, I mean, it's an amazingly small object, and that gives us the hint that we're looking at black holes. Some very small structures, very small accretion disks around the black hole where material is being funneled into the black hole and just before it gets in, when it's out there and it's getting heated up, gives us off tremendous amounts of energy in terms of radio. We saw the radio part of the spectrum was so much higher and gives out a lot of x-rays. And we see all of that from these types of objects. But the variations are telling us the faster it varies, the more compact it has to be because you cannot vary faster than it takes light to travel across you. Now the next one we see are what we call radio galaxies. Radio galaxies, surprisingly enough, happen to emit a lot of their light in the radio part of the spectrum. Amazing, isn't it? You're actually getting a few things that make sense here, huh? So they're very strong in the radio. And they have but they look, but when you look at the galaxy in the radio, it looks a lot different. Now if you look at this galaxy up here, this is the one, this is a this is just a visible light picture. Now if you classify that galaxy that's behind it, ignore this big dust lane going through it, it's pretty much an elliptical galaxy. But I told you last time elliptical galaxies don't have dust. Right? Elliptical galaxies don't have any gas and dust, so it shouldn't look like that. So there's something else interesting, but this overall galaxy, if you look at the whole thing here, it really looks like is really an elliptical. Then there's this big dust lane going through it. But if you look at it in the radio, so if you map this in the radio and make an image of it, you see here, you'll see something at the center, but you see this lobe going out this way. And you see some going out this way. But the rest of the galaxy is essentially invisible. So you have something very extreme. You can kind of see, if you watch how these lobes kind of trail in, they're focusing down towards some place in the core. So whatever is causing this immense radio emission is something streaming out of the core at very, very high speeds. So you have a jet of material that is shooting out of the core and causing, and then it hits interstellar material, intergalactic material out here, and excites it and causes it to glow in the radio. And if we look down even further, so if you zoom down in in the x-ray portion of the spectrum here, so visible radio, but we zoom way down in, in the x-rays and we're looking at just this little tiny section here, you can see a very strong jet in x-rays. And you're getting down into the core here would be where the black hole would be. But you see, again, this gives you the hint that you see two different things. We knew for hundreds of years, I mean, we'd seen this galaxy. This galaxy is very well known. It was a very unusual, peculiar galaxy as it might have been called because it didn't really fit any of the classifications that we talked about last time. But when you looked at it in the radio, it gave you a completely different view, or in the x-ray, a completely different view of what might, going on, might be going on deep in the heart of this galaxy. 
So we see a combination of things. Here we see that there's a galaxy itself that looks unusual in the visible. It has big lobes and jets in the radio and in the x-ray part of the spectrum. And in fact, some of these, if you can zoom in close enough, you can actually see in the visible, you can see jets of, jets of material as well. And it's all coming from what is probably a very massive black hole at the center, accreting material around the edge, and then sort of as we looked at with the other, we looked at with star formation, we said some of those stars would form jets. This does the same thing. As material accretes around it in one direction, it can apparently shoot out material at very high speeds, approaching the speed of light out at the poles as it rotates. Now, there's two different types of radio galaxies. I showed you one there that had those radio lobes to each side, but not all of them look like that. Some of them are actually dominated by the core. So when you look at some of these radio galaxies, they're very intense radio emission, but you don't see, you know, see the galaxy there, but you don't see any lobes. You don't see a lobe really on either side as we saw on the other. You saw those jets coming out. So there's two different types of radio galaxies. So when you split up the radio galaxies, you can have some that are dominated by the lobe or dominated by the core. So here's an example of one that's dominated by the core. So why do we have two different types? Is this actually, are there actually three different types? Are there actually four different types? We have the Seiferts, which were like spirals. We had radio galaxies, but now we're splitting those up into two. But we think that the radio galaxies are really the same type. It just depends on how we happen to be looking at it. So when we look at a radio galaxy, you know, we don't get a choice. Where do we, hap- where do we happen to be? Well, in our first image, maybe we're standing down here. There's our energy source in the galaxy, and we're looking at the jets coming out this way. And we would see a lobe radio galaxy, as we talked about before. If we were looking from the other direction, so if we're looking down towards one of the jets, so one of those jets is coming straight towards us, then you're not going to see it, right? You're just going to see this strong, intense radio emission of material coming towards us. So depending on how you're looking at that jet, depends on what you'll see. So if you're looking from this angle, sort of looking at it flat on, you would see a lobe-dominated radio galaxy with intense radio emission here, here, and the jet from the center. If you're looking from this angle, everything's all in a straight line going away from you. So it's all blurred together, and then you end up seeing just the blob of material. Everything's coming straight towards you, so all you see is the intensity of the radiation you don't see all the jets, you don't see the jets in the lobes because everything's all in a straight line. It's not spread out across the sky. Okay, over there. Okay. Now, we see it a lot of these. This is actually, this looks like M87 again. This is that central galaxy in Virgo. So as we look at that and we look at it invisible, and we zoom up invisible, I said, some of these we can actually see in the visible light. So if we zoom in here and look in great detail at the center, get up above the Earth's atmosphere, in fact, in many ways, get up to use the Hubble telescope, be able to see the details of what's going on inside, you can actually see evidence of the core, brighter core, with a jet coming out. And if you go in the infrared, you can see even closer. There's some very, very bright source down here, and then a very strong jet of material coming out. So many of these active galaxies have jets of material that are spewing out of them at very, very high speeds. The only thing we know that can do it 
that is it going to, could, be contract, could be confined in that small of a space as we determine they have to be would be a black hole. So a black hole accreting matter and spewing out two jets, one on either side. A lot of these do show signs of interaction. So a lot of them seem like they're galaxies that are interacting with others. There's something that's sort of feeding that black hole. Now quasars. Quasars were discovered, well the objects were discovered back in the 60s and figured out what exactly what they were. But quasars are also now called quasi-stellar objects. They were originally more, well quasars themselves means a quasi-stellar radio source. So that's quasar, quasar that way from quasi-stellar radio source. There are some, sometimes they're now just called quasars, then abbreviated, easier to say, right? Quasars. And sometimes just QSO for quasi-stellar object. Sometimes they're not necessarily a real strong radio source. So there are some that are just quasi-stellar objects. But what they were found is they were these very unusual objects. They had, uh, had very unusual spectral lines. They were very, very bright. It looked like a star. But they couldn't match up the spectral lines. And we talked about that. You know, when we did spectral classification. We said, how do we determine you know, the class of a star? We look for the spectral lines. We try to match up the spectral lines. How do we go about determining it if we can't figure out what the spectral lines are? It can be very difficult. We need to know exactly what those spectral lines are in order to figure out things like redshifts and compositions and classes. So these were very unusual stars and were then classified as what we call a quasi-stellar object. So they looked like a star, but they were, really didn't behave like a star and they had unusual, unusual spectral lines. It turns out their spectral lines really weren't that unusual. They were just hydrogen. But they were hydrogen that was shifted tremendously. So you should have hydrogen lines. We looked at these very early on in the class. You had that red one way down here, right? And then you had another, then you had another set of them, right? We had one here towards the greenish blue and then a couple in the blue towards the violet. So here they are here, but in this, in this quasar, they're actually shifted and they're barely visible out at much, much further to the red. So they're at extremely large redshifts. Which I just told you from Hubble's law means that they're very, very far away. Because the larger the redshift tells us the distance. So these were actually redshifted larger. And this is a relatively small one. We actually have a number of them where, if you recall those hydrogen lines, right? We had that nice set of hydrogen lines in the visible. Look at our hydrogen spectrum here. We had a ground state. We had a state here and here and here and here. And you saw the transitions we were looking at were from here. That was that red line of hydrogen. And then you had a little further up. You had the blue. You had the green. You had blue. So those are all the primary lines of hydrogen. They were to this transition. Don't forget there's a ground state here that it's going to eventually. So there's actual transitions going down here as well. They're just all out in the ultraviolet, so we, never, we don't see them. We talked about the visible part of the spectrum. When you looked at them here, they were occurring. You just didn't see them. But these are more energy, so higher energy because they're a longer distance. But there are quasars where you actually got those lines shifted 
from the ultraviolet and the object is moving so fast so, so away so fast and is so distant that they're actually shifted into the visible part of the spectrum. So it's moving at an incredible distance, dis incredible speed and it is at an incredible distance for us. And that's some of the most distant objects that we measure in the, in the universe. So, we found out what the spectral lines were. They were hydrogen, very simple. Big problem though. So it solved one problem and made us another one. Again, we're talking about you know, 40, 50 years, 40, 40 or so years ago, I think, roughly when a lot of this was done. So, okay, we figured out what they are. It's just hydrogen lines. So, with hydrogen lines, we know what Hubble's law is. I know how far away these objects are. They're at an incredible distance. But they're bright. Okay, they're not the brightest object in the nighttime sky, but they're incredibly bright. In order to be able to see them from this distance, well beyond the, uh, many of the galaxies, they have to be some of the brightest objects in the, in the universe. So they have to be among the most luminous objects, sorry, typo there, not in the galaxy, in the universe. They'd have to be the very bright. We wouldn't see them. You know, the sun would be invisible at these distances. You wouldn't even see that. Our galaxy wouldn't be very visible at these distances. But these objects are incredibly bright. So there has to be an incredibly, uh, incredibly large energy source down in the center of this that is producing <coughs> excuse me, all of this energy that is causing, that is causing us. Otherwise we would not be able to see it. As I said, our sun would be completely invisible. You put our sun out there a billion light years away, you wouldn't even see it. Not, e not even with the Hubble telescope. If you put our galaxy out there a billion light years, it wouldn't be all that, it wouldn't be all that prominent. But these objects, even further away, when you're talking many billions, some of them are 10, 13 billion light years away, and we can still see them. There's a lot of energy being put out there. A lot of energy. Okay, what was next? I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and stop there because I have your seek course evaluations to do. Question? 13 point something or other is as far, I don't remember the exact number, I know there was one that was, yeah, that's about as far away as we can, that's as far away as we can see. And we'll come to that a little bit in like the cosmology chapter in a little bit. Probably, maybe not. You know, we may be getting towards the edge of what we can, what we can see. Okay, let me pause this.